Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkshire, host, and today our guest is Vivek Sharma, an assistant professor of political science at Yale. Professor Sharma is broadly interested in the relationship between social institutions and political order, including alliances, warfare, and violence. To this end, he is working on several projects that examine property, kinship, military organization, and political authority, both secular and ecclesiastical, in the history of Europe. Today we'll talk with Professor Sharma about his social theory of war. Welcome, Professor Sharma. Well, thank you for having me. Your paper develops a theory of war based on key conceptual ideas developed by Karl von Clausewitz. That's Tell right. us about him. Well, Clausewitz is a particularly interesting person to start with, mm -hmm. uh, to start any analysis of war with, because he was a soldier, a highly sensitive soldier, dealing with the defeat, the catastrophic defeat of his society. I mean, we uh, often think that defeat has the advantage of concentrating the mind. And what Clausewitz did was, in a sense, try and understand what it was about the French Revolution that enabled it to defeat the old order mm -hmm. that he was a part of. And he did some very deep thinking about the nature of war and its relationship to politics. And so I think everybody is familiar with the basic cliche um, that, that Clausewitz is famous for, and that is that war is a political process, right? or it's the continuation of politics by other means. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what is your argument in the paper? Well, what I've uh, tried to do for, for a variety of reasons uh, in contemporary American political science, we have tended to, to deviate from a longer tradition, a longer sociological tradition, uh, thinking about, about thinking about war. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do is to show my colleagues in international relations and beyond what it is that can be gained by, by starting with a, with a sociology of war. And these are basically concepts that are about the nature of society and how that relates to conflict. And my argument is that, that there are basically two kinds of wars. There are wars about rulership and that there are wars about the rules. Mm -hmm. And I try and use this to explain why it is that you get variation in the intensity of violence, why it is that some wars are more violent, more destructive, and less easy to solve than others. And I basically argue and I apply insights from the political economy of institutions to the study of conflict. So, so in effect, my work is an introduction uh, of Clausewitz to the political economy of institutions. Okay, and in your paper, there are um, three sections where you structure your argument. T tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, unfortunately, Clausewitz, even though his, his most famous aphorism, you know, war is, a, is the continuation of politics by other means, isn't well known, uh, his work is actually not read uh, by, by contemporary American political scientists. And so the first section is really to try and remind people what it is that he said and why he said it. And it's important to revisit not just the historical context, but the theoretical conclusions that he drew from, from it. And so the first section, in a sense, deals with the French Revolution and its impact on, on Europe and how it is that Clausewitz and his milieu, because it wasn't simply Clausewitz, but various people 
within the Prussian high command, within, 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 the Austrian, within the Austrian establishment, who really had to do some deep thinking about why it is that they were losing, why it is that they were being catastrophically defeated, and what it is that they would need to do to respond to it. So that's the first section. Okay. The second section then moves beyond Clausewitz. So it, and, and the first section is not saying anything original about Clausewitz. I mean, it's, it's a fairly straightforward rendition of his work and, and his times. The second section is where it really is, where is, you know, is the real contribution um, th that I'm making. And that is to lay out in institutional terms what it is that's going on. Now, Clausewitz had the insight that there is a difference between limited war and total war. But he died before he could fully develop that. And nobody has really taken him up you know, where he left off. And so the second section, and you know, again, this is what, in a sense, this is what, what I'm really contributing to, to, to the study of war, is to try and lay this out in rigorous social science terms about what this means. I mean, why it is that you would get limited and why it is that you would get total war. And that's the dimension and that's the, well, that's the section in which I develop this institutional theory of war, in effect arguing that we cannot understand war, we cannot understand conflict without understanding the underlying social institutions that are being contested or not in the mm -hmm. case of limited war. So the basic argument there is that, there, that you would get two kinds of conflicts. The first type of conflict is about rank and status. And the argument is that conflicts about rank and status are analogs to phenomena that we would find in primatology, in, in any kind of social hierarchy. And that is that there will always be conflict about who is at the top of the heap. And my argument is that conflicts about that, about whether you know, who's going to be the pope, or who is going to be the president, or who's going to be uh, the leader, right, that actually will be limited. Right? It'll be limited because very little else is going to change. Right? It wouldn't matter in a coup, in a, in a, in a dictatorship, whether you know, one general or the other rules, or rather that affects a very, very small number of people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the violence it tends to generate is limited. On the other side, and the, uh, you know, the more interesting, I, or at least what I think is the more interesting mm -hmm. form of conflict is the total war, what Clausewitz would have called total war, and what I'm calling conflicts about, about rules, institutional rules. And the basic argument, or the basic intuition, is that those conflicts generate higher levels of violence. Mm -hmm. They are much, much more difficult to resolve because the numbers of people that are affected by the, by the changes is quite large. So if you, if you think about what institutions are, I mean, institutions are just power relations. They are, they are legitimate power relations. And they matter because they structure daily life. They structure how it is that people relate to one another. And if you change them, you're likely to have great resistance. I mean, to just give you an example from the contemporary South Asia. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pakistan, for example, has had numerous coups in its history, where the military displaces civilian leadership. And those, those types of conflicts, I mean, very few people get killed. Mm -hmm. In fact, very often, nobody gets killed. There's violence, mm -hmm. but it's not intense. And in fact, in Pakistan, everybody knows when a coup is going on 
to basically stay indoors, you wait for a message to come from you know whoever controls the capital, mm -hmm. and then everybody goes home and wow. and 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 th there's very little that has mm -hmm. changed. What's going on right now in Pakistan is actually much more dangerous and much more much more more worrisome mm -hmm. because it's not simply about who is going to be the president of Pakistan or who is going to be the chief of staff of the army. What is going on are various groups that are contesting the basic constitutional structure of the state. And that actually alienates much greater numbers of people. Mm -hmm. It alienates power segments that will resist, that under normal circumstances, under the circumstances of a coup, they wouldn't resist. So that's the second section. Okay. And then the third section is simply applying this to, to, to a range of social science literatures, as well as to debates like the clash of civilizations. Mm -hmm. And so the argument there is that, is that the social science literatures on conflict have fundamentally missed some basic, basic conceptual distinctions that need to be made in order to explain the sorts of things that we would like to explain. Mm -hmm. In effect, I'm saying that what we require is a much deeper understanding of the sociology of conflict in order to have the kinds of theories that we would like to have. So that would be the third section. Okay. And what is your implication for your social theory of war? Well, uh, the, the hubris uh, of the project mm -hmm. is, that, uh, is that I can explain a great deal more than, than, than others. But mm -hmm. I'll give you a few, a few examples. Okay. The, um, the first example would be that there's a tendency, both in the public domain, but also in the social science literatures on conflict, to either talk about, about conflict from the perspective of states mm -hmm or from the perspective of individual leaders that are making decisions. And there, is been, there has been very little attempt to unify these different levels of analysis. Mm -hmm. And the basic argument that I'm making is that it is, in fact, possible to deal with at least two levels of analysis, right? the individual level as well as the societal level, mm -hmm. in a unified theory. And so the first implication is that there's much greater explanatory power. Mm -hmm. But if you want to think about this in terms of current debates, from the perspective of people who are concerned about religious conflict, there's a tendency to, 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 to deal with religious conflict from the perspective of what motivates individual actors. Mm -hmm. And there is utility in that, right? Um, so, so the way the question tends to get framed in, in the public domain is, well, what is it about these five lines in the Quran or in the Bible that would lead somebody to go blow themselves right. up in, on, on the streets? And what I'm saying is that, well, th that may not necessarily be the most fruitful way to go about looking at the problem. Mm -hmm. That what, what is much more important for understanding patterns of violence is what it is that are the stakes of the conflict, wh what it is that the actors are actually doing as opposed to why they do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, that why, it's not that intentions and motivations are irrelevant. It's just that they're not going, we're not going to be able to answer the sorts of questions that we would, we would like to based on simply looking at people's motivations. And so to give you an example, I mean, what, what is deeply problematic about, about, about the, the rise of Islamic, Islamic militants in mm -hmm. Pakistan is not so much that they are Islamic, it's that they are threatening 
particular categories of institutions. And that in itself would explain why it is that you get the intensities of violence and why it is that you get resistance. And then there are other, uh, other implications. I mean, the, 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 the one that would probably be, be make most sense to, to people out in the public domain relates to this whole clash of civilizations thesis that, mm -hmm. that Samuel Huntington had put forth in the 1990s. And Samuel Huntington got a lot of flack for, for arguing that, that culture, in effect, I mean, he, he didn't quite use those terms, but in effect, culture matters for understanding conflict. Mm -hmm. And he got a lot of flack for it because it, it, it violated our liberal sensibilities about, about how the world works. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is that, that, it, that, I mean, Huntington's analysis was wrong. I mean, there is no clash of civilizations. But I think that his basic intuition that we need to understand social organization, which includes culture, in any analysis of conflict is right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been very unfortunate that people haven't taken Huntington up on his, on, on, on his agenda mm -hmm. right, for political reasons. Um, and that's, so that would, be, that, would, that would be the other major implication. Okay. You raised two major issues in your conclusion, yeah. a common reference point uh, for the study of war and a macro level approach uh, to conflict. Why are these important? Okay, well, uh, the, 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 the macro level, uh, th that has to do with sort of internal debates within political science. Mm -hmm. And so the general trends over the last 10 to 15 years has been to move to the micro level, and that is to look at individual level factors mm -hmm. in explaining conflict. And I'm saying that, well, the, I mean, while there is a great deal of utility in that, what we need to do is to spend much more time thinking about groups. Mm -hmm. Because war is not simply about two individuals in conflict. War is about groups. And we cannot, we cannot hope to understand war as distinctive from, from fighting between two individuals unless we take the sociology of group behavior seriously. Mm -hmm. And, I, and, and I, that's the agenda that I'm pushing within, within the social sciences. And in terms of, in terms of a common framework, uh, again, this, is a, this, this relates to, to how it is that the social sciences have been, have been dealing with conflict. There are a number of distinct research communities within, within the social sciences, within anthropology, within history, mm -hmm. within political science, and to a lesser extent within sociology. And these are all distinctive communities, distinctive research communities that are not talking to one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are, in effect, constantly reinventing the wheel in each of these sub-research sub communities without actually making progress. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a political scientist, I really do believe that we in political science have a great deal to learn from historians, from anthropologists, and from sociologists. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to demonstrate to, to my colleagues why, why it is that they should read history, mm -hmm. why it is that they should read anthropology, why they should be aware of Weber and Marx and Durkheim from, from sociology. Mm -hmm. So if everyone in those different disciplines worked to get together, we might come up with um, more solutions to the problems we face. I certainly think we'll do a better right. job than we're doing now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well thank you very much for being with us here today and sharing some of your research. Oh, thank you for having me. 
For more information about Professor Sharma and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.